Welcome to Paranormal Almanac with your host, Kurt Sandvik. Hey, howdy, hi, and welcome to another edition of Paranormal Almanac. And on this edition, oh boy, buckle up. Let's talk all things JFK. That's right, John F. Kennedy, just in case you didn't know what JFK stood for, and you're like, I don't know what a JFK is. Well, we're talking John F. Kennedy. And if you think, I know everything about JFK, well, let's see what happens after this episode. See how you feel then. But first, as always, let's do shout-outs. Shout-outs going out first to Holden Yeager for that incredible theme song. That's right. If you want to send in bumper music, incidental music, theme song music, if you are a talented musician like Holden Yeager, or Buzz Lee, for that matter, who does amazing paranormal news um, uh, theme songs, you can send in your music to paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Also... I'm getting ready for the 300th, 300th episode, that is, in case you're, I don't know, maybe it's your first time, you didn't look down to see how many episodes we've done. I've done a lot, but I need your suggestions for what you want to hear on not only the 300th episode, but the 275th episode, because I figured I kind of want to celebrate a little early, so let's do a 275 episode as well. So tell me, what do you want to hear? Is there... A specific guest you want to bring back? Is there, or not even bring back, to have on the show or bring back? Well, I, get, I don't care. Um, is there a topic you want to, you know, hey, you've never talked about this UFO topic or this incredible Yeti story or, I don't know, pick your topic, at, you know, like whatever you want me to talk about. Send those in as well to paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. But like I was saying right now, we're doing shout-outs. Shout-outs to the patrons. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. These people are what keep this show going. That is not bullshit. That is not me placating anybody. That is the absolute honest truth. Without them, I wouldn't have the equipment that you hear me on right now, the better microphone and the, the funky thing that makes all the noises, that records for me, that... I can adjust while looking at the equalizer. Like, the patrons are what make this show happen. So please don't skip ahead on these names. These are the people that are making the show happen that I couldn't do the show without. There's a special shout-out to Tracy Simonic for sending me something I never thought I would have. A piece of Fen's treasure. If you guys have listened to this episode, if you're a long-time listener, you know... There is something about Thin's treasure and a couple other treasures that are still out there that just intrigued me. And I'm not really like, oh, I need gold. I'm not one of those kinds of people. But Oak Island always intrigued me since I was a kid. Thin's treasure always intrigued me. Not since I was a kid, but since I found out about it. And there are a bunch of other treasures out there that 
have always intrigued me. And then when Fen's treasure was found, I was really happy because I I followed it voraciously. I didn't have any theories of my own. I had the general area. Fun thing is that I had the general area where the guy found the piece in, but I probably wouldn't have found it. Like this guy was dedicated and I'm glad he found it. And then the Fen treasure went up for auction immediately. And <clears throat> the 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 paramaniacs got together to to get me some money so I could try and bid on it. And it was just stupid expensive. Everything was going for like $1500 and I'm like I can't I can't afford it. Even with the, the you know the the paramaniacs help, I couldn't afford it. So the money that the paramaniacs ended up you know, I ended up using it for uh paranormal equipment. Some of which, a lot of which hopefully you'll see on a TV show called Ghost Girls coming up soon. Um, fingers crossed. Now, you know, maybe I'll get cut out. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. But if I don't get cut out, that's my paranormal equipment that you'll see on a couple of episodes. And uh, it's because of you. It's because of the patrons and the paramaniacs. But uh, Tracy was, <clears throat> even though that money was all spent on on paranormal equipment, the paramaniac, the fantastic paramaniac Tracy bought me a piece of Fen's treasure. I've got it literally a foot away from me behind me right now. Absolutely incredible. This will be the thing that I show anybody that comes over to the house. I can't wait to be like, do you know about Fen's treasure? No? Let me tell you all about it. And then look, I've got a piece of Fen's treasure. Blows my mind. Hopefully someday the, the Laginas will find the Oak Island treasure and maybe they'll throw that up on uh, for auction and I'll have a piece of both. I can have them side by side. How cool would that be? Anyhow, damn it. I'm talking about shout outs, Kurt. Oh, by the way, this is going to be a long episode. I know I already said it, but buckle up. This is going to be a long one. So shout-outs going out to Jeff Lightfoot. Ooh, I wonder if he's in relation to Gordon Lightfoot. Brenda. Hey, howdy, hi. Richard. Logan. I'm assuming not uh, Wolverine Logan. Lori. Alec. Roger Funk. Karen Weber. Durant. You know, Roger Funk. I, I keep wanting to put, like, Funky music on one of these little, like, those things with these little buttons. So when I say Roger Funk, I can, like, push it, and it's like, we got the funk, all about that funk. But I'm sure he hears that all the time. Karen, Duran, Nikki Loves James, Lori, Alicia, Rebecca, and Stephen Cher. Hey, howdy, hi. Hope you're doing well. Jennifer, Heather G., your procrastinating neighborhood skinwalker. I'm going to be procrastinating a lot on this episode, so right on theme again. I don't know how you do it, but you do it well. Zuzus, what's it? Nico Sharon the Mouse. Hey, howdy, hi. Hope you're doing well. Mark and Tina, Tortuga. Mike from Jersey, Jay Bizzle, Andy. The special shout-out person herself, Tracy Simonic. Virginia Mailman, Tony the Magician, Jason, Vicky, Crow. Speaking of magicians, uh, friends of mine just went to Magic Castle uh, like a couple weeks ago. Hopefully I get to go again. I love the, absolutely love the Magic Castle. So Tony the Magician, my question for you this week is, have you ever been to the Magic Castle? And if so, what did you think of it? Because I would love to do an episode of this show from the Magic Castle. Because it's got to be haunted, right? It's got to be. People have been found dead in the Magic Castle. It's crazy weird. All the crap that they got in there, something's got to be haunted. Anyhow, Jason, Vicky, Crow, Clay, Buzz Lee. Hey, howdy, hi. Lobito Works, Glacier, Maine. Oh, Buzz Lee. He just released, and I don't have it up here. This is going to be the worst plug for his new vampire song. Um, it's not even really a song. It's like a whole thing. It's like a, 
I, I, I'll be honest. I'm hoping that uh, I can talk my DM uh, for my Dungeons & Dragons uh, game to actually play it in the background while we're playing because we're playing uh, Curse of Strahd, D- Dungeons & Dragons Curse of Strahd, which is about vampires. Well, Buzz Lee, um, boy, I feel terrible. I don't have it up in front of me. Um, trying to find it while I'm while I'm procrastinating. Um, it's it's called Vampire. Uh, I'll find a I'll find it and I'll I'll put a better plug on like the Facebook fan page. Um, come on, where is it? It's the it's the bargain basement butterflies. But where is the link, Kurt? Come on. Um. Oh, here we go. Uh, bargainbasementbutterflies.com. That's bargainbasementbutterflies.com. It's called Vampire. He describes it as a one-track dark ambient album. Ambient album. I really dig it. The idea is a movie soundtrack feel to let you get lost in a story however you see fit, which is, again, a very cool idea. Sit back, relax. You're now in the world of the vampire. And I'd play it, but I've, I've now found out that uh, that as soon as I hit play on it, it demonetizes me on YouTube, so I can't. Not that I ever get anything off of YouTube, but still. Uh, but you should check it out is what I'm saying because I listened to it the other day in the background while I was working, and I dug it. So as I think you I think you guys would like it as well. Lobita Works, Glacier Main, Isabel, Jen Jen, Stacy, Amber, Tracy, Kelly Joe, Menace the Beast, Kick-Ass Magic, Robot Web Comic, Sandy, Paige, Kausch, Bentman666, Scott, Andrea, Melody, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Becca, Jake, Charlotte, and the Beasties, Elizabeth, Sherry, Art Muffin, Tim. Hey, howdy, hi, Tim. Kenneth, Ricky, Ricardo, Eliz- Alexandra, George, Zosa the Demon. <laughs> Hayden, Cindy, Ashley, Carrie, Robin, Will, Lauren, Russell, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy. Dorian, how you doing, buddy? I haven't talked to you in a while. I got to do a live show. I like I like talking to you guys. Live show's coming up soon. Cindy, Paula, Jerry, Jeff T. Hey, howdy, hi. Joe, Lawrence, Melissa, Lauren. The Lauren Strong, that is. Hey, howdy, hi to her. Autumn, J. Mark, Carolyn, Ryan, and Melena are eagerly awaiting the 300th episode. Once again, that's Ryan and Melena are eagerly awaiting the 300th episode. I hope you are. I really do because it's going to be a good one. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I have no plans. I'm, I'm starting to, like, think things up, but I got to get into it, man. Nanashi. Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson. I got to hang out with those guys. Man, it's been a little while. Dan, Laura Pitts, and Gamer Fan with, again, two special shout-outs that will always happen to the the Joe Teague and to my boy Stitch. And you know what? I'll throw another one in there. Special shout-out to Rum. She's my girl. She's the best. All righty. I'm telling you guys, no joke at all. This is going to be a, a supersized episode, so why don't we start with a supersized paranormal news. Ooh, which one do I want to press now? Let's do this one. Have you ever seen Bigfoot riding on the back of Nessie while being sucked up into the sky by a UFO, all to the soundtrack of a choir of ghost cats being led by a black-eyed child? Is this story true? Well, there's only one place you're going to find out. Get all my news from paranormal news. Listen carefully for the clues. The stories are strange and bizarre. It makes you wonder just who we are. This is paranormal news. Paranormal news. There's something in the shadows. Take it away, Kurt. I sure will, Buzz. 
never want to talk over the cat because I love the cat part of that. I mean, I love the whole thing, but the cat part I absolutely love. All right, the first story in paranormal news, cryptic national security threat sparks UFO theory. A cryptic statement warning of possible serious national security threat on Wednesday sparked many social media users to speculate that it's related to UFOs. Now, the weird thing is, when I saw that, that there was a cryptic statement about a possible security national, na- serious national security threat, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if it was disclosure? Like, wouldn't that be cool? And apparently, so did a shit ton of other people. I mean, obviously, that's the first thing I thought. And then the second thought was like, ooh, this could be bad. It's probably going to be like Civil War kind of bad, but whatever. In a statement, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner said, Today, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has made available to all members of Congress information concerning a serious, serious national security threat. I'm requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration, and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat. But there are no further information detailing what the threat is. That's the scary part. So, yeah, people went, well, it's got to be UFOs, right? Simulation over, right? Uh, Someone said aliens. Is it aliens? It's aliens, isn't it? Another person said imminent UFO invasion. God, I hope so. Another one said, I'm really hoping that it's concerning UFO UAPs and it means we're getting one step closer to disclosure. Either way, pay attention, America. Something wicked this way comes. That one is probably very true. Just pay attention. Something bad is on the horizon. I it's I don't want it to happen in 2024, but boy, howdy, does it seem like it's going to happen in 2024. Uh, this next one wrote, uh, you're not reading the room if this is not UAP UFO related. Another guy says it's definitely aliens. Uh, another guy said, speculation is running that the NATSAC threat could be UFO-related. If so, Turner is vague about it if UFO-related, especially with the UAP hearings going on. All right. No one knows. Is the is the ultimate end of this story is that no one knows what it is. If you're in America, pay attention. Something, something weird's going on is all I'm saying. All right. Hold on. I got to uh, figure out. Why I'm hearing, I know that you guys aren't hearing it, but I hear hear it. It drives me crazy. A buzzing noise. There we go. I think I got it. I I move stuff off of cords. It's called, why don't you keep your freaking desk clean, Kurt? Um, That's that's the, uh, you're going to take anything away from this episode. Make it that. Keep your uh, workspace clean because, you know, you're trying to be professional here, goddammit. All right, up next in paranormal news, Arizona has more UFO sightings than the rest of, than most of the U.S. See the rankings. Okay, I think I got it. Arizona is known to be a UFO hotspot, and a new interactive map shows that it's one of the states with the most UFO sightings confirms it. Arizona appears to have the fourth most reported UFO sightings of all Arizona... Okay, this doesn't make any sense. This is what the article says in Arizona Central. Arizona appears to have the fourth most reported UFO sightings of all Arizona states, according to the map. I think you mean states, not Arizona states. By clicking on the dots on the map, people can see a description of the reported sightings in that location. The green dots are recent reports. Most of the reports come from the United States, as that's where the reporting center is based. So this is a cool map. I will throw this up as well um, on the uh, Facebook fan page. My God, does it light up with UFO reporting sightings. I mean, it's lit up, except for obviously like Wyoming, like the states where there's not a ton of people. 
like the Wyoming, Upper Nevada, the Montana, let's see, most of South Dakota, Nebraska, um, I don't even know what, uh, Kansas, some of Oklahoma. But you get to like the parts where there's a there's people, it's lighting up. You get to the parts where there is military bases, woof, it's really lighting up. The whole eastern seaboard is just crazy lit up. But it is supposed to be a world map. They got Nova Scotia on there. Oh, yeah, they is. United Kingdom, tons of them. Ireland, tons of them. Belgium, Germany. It's a really cool, neat, pardon me, a really cool, neat map. And apparently, if you zoom in and then click on one, which I'm trying to do right now while I'm talking, let's go to Burbank. There we go, Burbank. Oh, it's right by my house. One sighting in 2009. Hold on, I got to read this sighting from 2009 that's right by my house. Three UFOs were seen close to Universal Studios on March 14th, 2009. What? I want to see them. Oh, what's this? From 1981. Wow, Burbank's got a ton of them through to 2022. Absolutely tons of sightings. 2020, November 9th, pardon me, November 9th, 2022. Singular triangle, black, very large aircraft, silent at moderate speeds into San Fernando Valley at the southeast. I remember when this one was reported. Unfortunately, I didn't see it. Black circling low craft. You know what? I might do an episode, just Burbank UFO sightings. And by might, I mean I'm going to do an episode. Um, I'm kind of excited about doing this. Burbank UFO sightings. Um. So look for that coming up soon. But anyhow, back to Arizona. Uh, the state breakdown of UFO sightings, the top 10 again. I know I did this one just recently, but Alaska, 642. Alabama, 1,403. Arkansas, 1,289. Arizona, 4,981. California, 16,238. Colorado, 3,000. A little over. Connecticut, 2,000. Florida, Florida 8,000. Delaware, 400. Georgia, 2,000. Hawaii, 600. Iowa, 1,200. It just keeps on going. What about Michigan? 3,668. So there is a lot of sightings to be talked about, UFO sightings in the future coming up. So you know you got that coming for you. All righty, up next in paranormal news, I got to kind of keep moving on. Um, Up next in Paranormal News, why are some of the most educated people in America now believing in UFOs? The answer, Paranormal Almanac. I'm just guessing. I don't, it doesn't, probably doesn't say that. Let's see. Alex Hannaford finds out why so many smart people are convinced aliens are among us. The answer is blocked right now. Why is it blocked? It wasn't blocked a second ago. Hold on. The answer is, here we go. The answer is, oh, it's actually really interesting. The answer is due to increase in scientific studies, due to decrease in religious people, and due to the government now discussing UFOs, more and more people are now convinced that there is something out there and there's more to be found. Well, yeah. that's. I mean, I guess it's kind of interesting about the, the religious. It doesn't make, I'm not too surprised by it. Um, I, I do know that there are a bunch of religious people that listen to this show and they have open minds about it, which I think is all you need. You just need to have an open mind. You can be a skeptical believer, basically, as I am, 
but be open-minded. Although I'm not a skeptical believer when it comes to UFOs. The UFOs are real. Like 100% UFOs are real. Alrighty, what happened? The next one is, what really happened during the Roswell crash? America's most famous UFO case is thrust back into the spotlight again by former NASA scientists who say new Pentagon report is bogus. Oh, and the buzzing's back. Check one, two. All right. One of America's most famous UFO cases, if not the most famous, has been thrust back in the spotlight decades after the Air Force claimed to have solved it. The Roswell incident of 1947 captured imaginations worldwide when the U.S. Air Force issued a press release stating that it had recovered debris from a flying disc. But less than 24 hours later, military officials reversed course, announcing, announcing the debris was a crashed weather balloon. Thankfully, nobody believed that back then. And now, science is saying, well, that's bullshit. Last month, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, the Pentagon's departing UFO chief, teased his office's own conclusion. The Air Force's 1994 report was correct. Roswell's flying saucer crash had just been debris from a top-secret Project Mogul spy balloon. But independent experts, myself included, I don't consider myself an expert, but I guess I am because I thought the same thing and found the same thing. But independent experts, including former NASA scientists, say that the official documents created by the very scientists who ran Project Mogul themselves contradict the government's theory. Page 715 of the Air Force 881-page report on the Roswell crash as transcribed journal entry by Project Mogul's, Mogul's field operation director, geophysicist Dr. Albert Crary, states that the key scheduled balloon launch never took place. Let me read that again. Project Mogul's field operations director states the key scheduled balloon launch never took place. And if you look at it, in their own report, it says no balloon flights again on account of clouds. No balloon flights on account of clouds. January 4th, 1947. Running from 1947 until early 1949, Project Mobile, Mogul was an effort to track and uh, from a distance the sound waves generated by the Soviets' nuclear weapons test. They didn't launch it. June 4th, 1947. No balloon flights. So they can keep trying to say, oh, it was, um, yeah, it was balloons and secret balloons. And, um, oh, yeah, it was also mannequins and secret mannequins. No. Every time they come out with a plausible reason why it wasn't aliens, it turns out, oh, yeah, it's probably aliens. All righty, up next in Paranormal News. I'm a pilot. I saw a giant UFO twice the size of a city while flying at 35,000 feet before it vanished into the night. Captain Arturo Sacedo said his plane was plunged into total darkness in the sky before he noticed the gigantic spacecraft. He said it was twice the size of a city. He was flying over the central Mexican state of, ooh, I'm going to get this wrong, I'm so sorry, Cuartau. Quartaro? Quartaro? Sure, that's wrong. Heading to Los Angeles, I got that one right, when he encountered a strange light in the sky. He immediately thought it was a human-made, possibly something to do with SpaceX, but he said, suddenly, we were plunged into total darkness with only the panels lit up. I then saw a beam of light that I first thought was something from Starlink. 
basically a line of satellites, blah, blah, blah. I said, what is it? It looked very strange. He said, the object was so large, it appeared twice the size of the city that I can't pronounce, which you could see up to 30, uh, see lit up 35,000 feet below. I should clarify that a UFO is not necessarily aliens. It's an unidentified flying object, he said, to try and not make himself sound crazy. That's, I said that, Kurt said that. We're used to seeing things that are common to us, but this was not common at all. It was very strange because of the size. It was gigantic. It was like something that's twice the size of that city. Boy, this guy liked to repeat himself. This kind of thing always causes a lot of controversy because you don't believe it until you see it. He says he's now a believer. Um, he just keeps going on and on. Um... But yeah, so ginormous UFO spotted by a pilot. He didn't want to report it because there's still stigma when pilots report UFOs, sadly. Alrighty, up next in Paranormal News from NPR. Is Bigfoot real? Well, a new book deep dives into the legend. Uh, let's see. I want to get to the heart of this article. Here we go. John O'Connor's The Secret History of Bigfoot, Field Notes on a North American Monster. That sounds great. I got to try and get this guy on the show. Um, he says that this book surpassed all of his expectations. If you're looking for a book that proves the existence of Bigfoot, look elsewhere. If you want a book that's all about discrediting evidence and making those who believe in Bigfoot look like bumbling fools wearing tinfoil hats, also look elsewhere. The Secret History of Bigfoot is a smart, engaging, incredibly informative, hilarious, and wonderfully immersive journey, not only to the history of Bigfoot in North America and the culture around, but also a deep, honest, heartfelt look at the people who obsess about it, the meanings of its myth, lingering appeal, and the psychology behind it. The author, John O'Connor, is a journalist, a self-diagnosed skeptic, but he's fascinated by Bigfoot. So he spent a year traveling around the country, talking to those who live for Sasquatch and tracking Bigfoot in untamed terrain, terrain of the Pacific Northwest. Um, his research also includes interviews uh, psych with psychologists and scientists, he delves into the history and politics of it. Um, it doesn't really say what he what his ultimate uh, findings are, which is I'm kind of fine with. I'll I'll read it. Um, look, Bigfoot's real. Even if you're writing a book about him, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. Up next in paranormal news, told you it's going to be a big one. Beyond Skinwalker Ranch season two release date rumors. When's it coming out? Beyond Skinwalker Ranch on the History Channel. Uh, let's see. It's expected to arrive sometime in summer of 2024. It's already been in production. It's already been filmed. Um, there's no specific date yet, but the official synopsis reads, utilizing a team of reputable professionals working alongside the secret of Skinwalker Ranch veterans, this series explores other sites of unusual activity and high strangeness phenomena in an effort to discover if the activity documented on Skinwalker Ranch is not only real, but pervasive. That sounds good to me. I want more Skinwalker Ranch in my life. If they have to go beyond it, I shall. Up next in paranormal news. Oh, this one's taking a minute to load. Come on, baby, you can do it. There we go. Ghost sparks chaos at Zengaza, Zengaza, Zengiza? Sure, primary school. A suspected ghost caused chaos at Mberry Primary School in Zengiza yesterday morning, resulting in one child being injured in a stampede. The ghost, which they claim was in the form of a woman, scared students in grade four yellow to the point where lessons were disrupted and one student ended up being taken to the clinic. Parents and guardians gathered to collect their children with one parent being arrested when police intervened. 
They were disturbed. They, they were disturbed after a shadow-like image in the form of a woman was spotted seated on the table, forcing both the teacher and the children to flee from the classroom. Nothing was seen after other teachers and students gathered to see where the shadowy figure was spotted. We, we strongly suggest that one of the staff members dabbles in Satanism, said one parent. All right, calm down there. Officials from the Ministry of Primary and Secondary Education are investigating the matter. When an H Metro crew arrived at the school, um, people were leaving the premises. We came to collect information about the case, and we are yet to compile a report. I'm not in a position to comment, but something was seen. That's cool. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news. What's that? They capture a strange creature moving along the fl among the flames of fire in Chile, 2024. This one is being translated as I'm scrolling, so it's going to be a little wonky, but it's a TikTok video, basically, from fires in Chile in 2024. And it says, for several days now, people have been wondering what's happening in South America since the fire in Chile's have been devastating. Some TikTok users say that there's a strange creature that can be seen in the Chile flames was a maybe a giant since it appears human-shaped and the size of a tree. All righty, clicking on the TikTok now. It's fire. It's a lot of fire. There's trees. A lot of fire and trees. More fire and trees. They're panning out. Oh, what's that? That looks like a tree to me. Was that really supposed to be it? Hold on. Really? Was that supposed to be it? Because that's a tree. Yeah, that's a tree on fire. It's a slightly human-shaped... Oh, wait. No, no, no. Oh. Now, there is something moving among the trees. And it does look human shape. I mean, it could be, it's TikTok. It could be, it could be faked pretty damn easily. But yeah, there is a human-like shape that, all right, it is weird. It's a ginormous tree-sized human shape thing that's moving in the fire, directly in the fire. All right, I'll throw this up on the Facebook fan page. I want to hear what you guys think about this weird giant standing in fire. All righty, up next in Paranormal News, Evil Spirit Haunts AP Villagers. Youth stand guard at night. Villagers say that when it gets dark, they live in fear as they don't know when the evil force will emerge. This is in um, Hyderabad, in the Kendrakota village of Pitapuram Mandal. Oh, come on, man. Pitapuram Mandal of Kakinada. Yeah, got all that right. I don't know. It's a ghost in a village, what I'm saying here, people. Um, so far, no one's seen the ghost, but claimed to have heard strange sounds coming out of nowhere in the darkness. One fine morning in the second week of February, the villagers found someone had performed a, uh, ceremony with, uh, turmeric, saffron, lemons, and dried chili. After that, there were signs of a goat being slaughtered and eaten near a house in the village. On, uh, Amavasya Day, the villagers said they started performing a ritual that I'm not going to even try to pronounce along with the Shiva temple in the village. Some of the women say that they're that an unknown person knocked on the door of a house in the middle of the night. They got up a black figure with long hair and big feet without clothes, jumped from a tree and vanished. And since then, people have been seeing him everywhere. He just keeps going on. Incidents have created panic in the villages nearby as well. The elders of the village village all think all claim that they hear strange noises and screams They've never heard anything like it before. A few days ago, a video of two men running naked from the fields at the end of the village went viral. Um, it just keeps going on, but there's absolutely no video or clips about it. So I'm going to keep on, you know, I'm going to keep moving on is what I'm saying. 
Alrighty, up next is one that I've been wanting to watch, and I have not watched it until just now, or until in a second from now. Dad stunned after catching ghost arm reaching into child's cot through the baby monitor. Footage from the baby monitor appears to show an arm going into the cot. My God, this better have the video. Oh, it does. I was going to say, if it doesn't have video, I'm going to lose my mind because I've been wanting to watch this. Uh, after checking the footage filmed on the 5th of February on his phone, he says he spotted a ghostly hand reaching into nine-month-old Xander's cot while he slept. Uh, this is in South Yorkshire. He said this was the first night the baby monitor had been set up as it was my first time my little one had spent one night in his room alone. As a parent, you just want to make sure they have a good night's sleep, which is why I check the app in the morning. And I noticed there was some activity at 6.50 a.m. We didn't go in his room until 8.24 a.m. as he didn't, we, didn't want to wake, we didn't want him to wake up until then. In the video... I saw an arm reaching into the cot and looked like it was going to pick his dummy up. I was looking for a logical explanation behind it, and I must have annoyed my wife all day as I kept saying, it must have been you. But she watched the footage, and the arm didn't have her Pandora bracelet on, so we know it wasn't her. He says he's lived in the house since he was 19. It's not the first time he's experienced something paranormal, though. He said he put up with so much spooky business, he wrote a book called The Lady in the Bay Window about it. I might have to see if I can get this guy in the show. But anyhow, I want to watch this damn video. I've been hearing about it forever. People are like, did you see this video yet? No, no, I haven't. All righty, let me skip past this commercial or talk through this commercial since they're not allowing me to skip. But everybody's been like, hey, have you seen this video? You got to watch this video. You can put this video on new paranormal news, which, you know, thank you. I love that when people, you know, approach me for stuff. But no, I hadn't seen it yet. All right, here we go. I see a baby lying in a cot. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's straight up a woman's arm reaching in, touching something, and then going right back out. Yeah, you know what? If I was him, I would be blaming the wife, too, because it does look like a woman's arm just reaching in, checking on the baby. But if she says it wasn't her, then, yeah, I don't know. Sanders got a ghost. Up next in paranormal news, a school gets exorcists. School gets exorcists over. Principal felt girls were possessed. That's a terrible headline, India News. Um, after girls of government high school in Bimtal town of Nainital. Boy, I'm, allow I'm screwing so much stuff up. I, I hate that. Sorry. Um, he thought that uh, school girls in the school were high school were possessed. They had a the school management carried out ancestor worship to cure them of the possessions. It prompted the education department officials to seek a report from lock level officers. Basically, what they're saying is that they thought that a bunch of the girls in school were possessed, so they had an exorcist come to, you know, exorcise them of their demons. Let's see. The principal in charge of the school said a Class 7 student was possessed last Thursday and started doing bizarre activities like breaking chairs and shouting loudly. When other girls tried to calm her down and offered her water, the influence spread to them as well. Over the next three to four days, five girls were possessed. They started shouting loudly, dancing, jumping here and there. He said it was such a problem, it started to worsen, that 14 girls were influenced by Tuesday. He said they were crying loudly as they were scared looking at other girls. Reportedly, none of the boys studying in the, in the co-ed school were affected. So, they had a Jager, J-Jagar, J-A-G-A-R, a form of ancestor spirit worship in the school. One of the priests came in conducting the ceremony. The girls calmed down after it was conducted. They were also informed that there was a problem with the room, which, func which functioned as a classroom. So as of now, a picture of, God of a goddess 
and a lit earthen lamp were placed in the classroom, and it's been locked. So they don't think it's just the girls. They think it might actually be the room itself that is possessing the girls. Alrighty, up next in Paranormal News. I'm almost done. Don't worry. Keep on skipping if you have to, but I like these stories. Ghost or coincidence, DJ's death adds to Haunted Room's dark history. A formula, former popular DJ was found dead in his haunted room, leaving a haunted note about ghosts and previous deaths. Neighbors say they were unaware of the tragic incident until a foul smell led rescuers to investigate. On June 4th, the Sawang Phone Sawang Fon Kusan Rayong Rescue Foundation, poof, local authorities and police officers responded to a rented room after neighbors detected a foul stench. There they discovered the body of Yam, 77 years old, a former well-known DJ known for his charming voice. The neighbors were unaware of the situation and estimated that he had died three to five days ago. The rented room's diary and walls revealed Yam suffering from multiple illnesses and paranormal disturbances. His illness and spirits tormented him, rendering him unable to take care of himself. They said he was polite, quiet, well-read, but he wrote this. There are ghosts in this room every night. The temple where I'm staying is powerful. I don't know if they want me to make some, some merits for them. They come to torment me, my karma. No one believes me when I tell them. They think I'm ridiculous. I don't know what to do. I'm extremely tormented. They are everywhere, day and night, interfering with everything. I will die a nervous wreck. Signed, Yam. Aw, that's kind of sad. Kind of sad and kind of creepy. All righty. Um, finally, have you guys seen the trailer for Sasquatch Sunset? I know the fan page has been talking about it. I've been talking about it. I've been waiting for this trailer for a while since they announced this movie and the, the premise of the movie. It's all done in a Sasquatch language. There's nothing English about it, supposedly. It's not, movie's not out yet. But um, I will be so upset if I don't get invited to the red carpet for this thing. I've reached out to the production company and the director, you know, telling them like, hey, I Paranormal Almanac, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. It's one of my catchphrases. I'm not crazy, I swear. Please let me go to the red carpet. I'd love to review it on an episode. And I'd also love to do interviews. I so I told them, I'm like, hey, if you guys are doing interviews for it, I will gladly do a, just, you know, like a Hollywood interview, Sasquatch Sunset, Paranormal Almanac episode. I think it'd be a blast. But if you haven't seen the trailer, you really should watch the trailer because, my God, it looks damn interesting. I can't wait for this movie. All righty, uh, let's see. Before we go to the break, there's new merch. Head on over to tpublic.com slash stores slash paranormal dash almanac. tpublic.com slash stores slash paranormal dash almanac. There's brand new merch, and I got to say, I kind of dig a couple of the new styles. I mean, I know I make them, but kind of dig them. And with that, let's take a quick break. We got a lot more show to get to, so let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with even more Paranormal Almanac. We are back. I'm not kidding, people. Buckle up. This is going to be a long one. That's what she said. Anyhow, uh, this is going to be a long one. It's already like 35 minutes into this episode, and I haven't even started talking about JFK. And you know, the thing is, you can't talk about JFK without talking about conspiracies. And I mean a shit ton of them. Try it. Try bringing up like JFK or the assassination, like JFK's assassination, and see if everybody's just like, all right. Or if someone goes, 
you know, I don't think Oswald did it alone. Or Grassy Knoll, or Aliens, or Cuba, or Jack Ruby, or like a billion other things. And some of these conspiracies, I mean, obviously, some of them are batshit crazy. But some of them, not so much. And longtime listeners will know, hopefully, it, and in, you got to find the episode, because I don't know what episode it's on. Um, so I'm sure someone will be like, it's episode 94, but I don't know what episode it's on. But I told a story a while ago on Paranormal Almanac. Back in the day, I used to work for uh, MySpace. Remember MySpace? It was like Facebook. Kind of. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's gone. Um, I'm happy it's gone. But uh, there's a thing called MySpace. I work for it. Um, I, I caught the horrible people of the internet while I worked there. But we would go to Dallas every year for the National Center for Missing Exploited Children's Conference. Um to protect, basically protect kids from monsters, you know, in, in the real monsters, the horrible, horrific, pedophilic kind of monsters. Uh, but we'd go to Dallas and it was a ton of police officers and law enforcement and FBI and everybody that were involved in this conference. So, you know, you'd see like cops walking by with like their flak vest on and their gun out and stuff. And it's like, you know, relax. It's a conference. We're going to be talking about this shit. They're not going to be here. Calm down. Like Chris Hansen was there. But one of the guys that, that kind of was like in charge of the conference or higher up in the conference was a retired Dallas police officer. And the first year on his force was 1963. The first, one of the first jobs he really had was the day that Kennedy was killed in Dallas, November 22nd, 1963. And he told me, and he was not, you know, shy about telling me. I told him, like, oh, I'm a huge uh, Kennedy file or whatever you call it. I really, you know, I'm intrigued by the assassination and I want, the, you know, the truth, basically. You know, the X-Files. I, I want to believe. What's the truth? I want, you know, the truth is out there. And he told me that he saw somebody. He was a police officer there that day. He saw somebody at the grassy knoll. Him and a cop. He's on one of, it's. I don't think it's a Pruder film, one of the photos. There's a cop that's running up towards the grassy knoll. I believe that's him. Don't quote me on that one. It's been 20 years since he told me the story. Like I said, you can find the episode. There's more details back then. Um, but um, he said he saw evidence. He saw someone, there was evidence that someone was running towards the train tracks from the grassy knoll behind the wall. There was cigarette butts. There were footprints. He, he took, you know, the cigarette butts and, and wrote down like all of the eyewitness testimony that were right there before the secret service or the CIA or whoever they were came and took it all from the, from the police station. And this guy told me this story, like I said, early two thousands, this guy told me this story and it, and it matches up to what a lot of people said the Warren Commission did and uh, or what happened to them when they told the Warren Commission, you know, what happened to them about supposed police officers or the CIA, CIA or Secret Service or just people like with shotguns basically taking away evidence from them. Well, that's what they did to this guy at the Dallas police station. They came around and said, now it's our case now. And they took all of the evidence. You got those cigarette butts. All right, let me take it all away. This guy, a decorated police officer, just started out on the force, was convinced there was a second shooter. Was convinced that Oswald didn't act alone. He was also convinced that where Oswald was killed by Jack Ruby was the absolute dumbest place. And he took me there. He actually took me to that spot 
where Jack Ruby killed Oswald, and there was no reason for they could have they could have backed up that armored cop car, whatever it was, that they were going to transport Oswald in. They could have backed it up right to where they he pops out of the elevator. They could have cleared that whole uh, hallway where there were just shit tons of people hanging around, including the guy that owns the local titty bar, Jack Ruby, right there. There was no reason for any of that. He told me, he's like, here's where they should have done it. Here's where they used to do it. And they, you know, prior to that, why they didn't follow standard procedures. And he was convinced that, like, it's a cover-up on a grand scale. And I wholeheartedly believe this guy. He didn't, you know, write a book. He wasn't making any money from saying this. He wasn't doing tours. He did it... For me and a couple other of my friends, or a couple of the people that were at the uh, conference, but he got us in a van, he drove us around, he got me to sit in the spot where Lee Harvey Oswald was. In the spot, in the Texas Book Depository, in the museum. In this spot, that's a, it's like closed off, it's like got like a plexi closed off area with like, you know, like set deck boxes and stuff, so it makes it look like it looked when Oswald was there. But I gotta sit in that spot. And, and he said, all right, where would you shoot? You know, Kennedy's coming straight towards you this way. He's going to make a left, and he's going to start driving away. And there's that tree. Remember, imagine that tree is going to be smaller. And he was so right. I would have taken, there was a head-on shot that Oswald could have, bam, 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 as he's driving towards Oswald. Nope, didn't take that shot. He waited until Kennedy turned and started, not Kennedy himself, but the, the limo turned and was driving away. And it was a dumb spot to start just shooting off. You know, like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense is what I'm saying. I, like I said, I wholeheartedly do not believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I think he was there in the Texas School Book Depository. I think he got shots off. But I don't think he was the only assassin there that day. I 100% do not believe the Warren Commission results on the assassination. And it turns out that that uh, that feeling is being shared by more and more people as years go by. That the Warren Commission did a really shitty job investigating, doing fact-finding, keeping the evidence. I mean, there was it was just a shit investigation into one of the worst things that happened in American history, like, you know, like 9-11, like there's some, you know, like, you know, killing a president, especially back then at that time, was unheard of, unthinkable, even though it had happened to previous presidents like Lincoln and whatnot. It was unthinkable, but turns out that years go on from the Warren Commission, more and more people have disproved their claims. More and more people have said that, that, aren't even trying to be like conspiracy theorists or tinfoil hat wearers saying, no, the Warren Commission wasn't wrong, wasn't complete, isn't accurate. And for me, I got to say, the more you deep dive facts, it gets really hard because there's a ton of bullshit. There's been like, I don't know, like 2,000 books written about the JFK assassination. Everybody's got a theory. And I mean everybody. The more rabbit holes you go down, the worse it gets. But... If you deep dive facts from the eyewitnesses that were there that day, their testimony, you just do those facts. You remove the bullshit. Seriously, look at that eyewitness testimony given at the time. Look at the Subruder film. Look at the photos. Look at the 
every, you know, like all of the evidence that is there. And don't go down the rabbit holes of conspiracy theories. A few things will emerge. And I think this is true for anybody that does it. One, the Warren Commission wasn't handled very well. Two, everything that happened on that day, November 22nd, 1963, was not handled that well. I get that he didn't want the top up. He wanted, Kennedy wanted people in Dallas to see him. He wanted people, he wanted to show that he loved Dallas just as much as hopefully Dallas loved him. The Secret Service didn't handle it perfectly, the situation perfectly. They didn't clear the streets perfectly as they should have done. And, you know, in retrospect, they all will agree that they didn't do enough because Kennedy was killed. But, um, and three, that the government knows more than what they're saying. To this day, to this day, the government knows more than what they're saying. Like I said, let me stop right here to say, my hope is everyone will learn something from this episode. And a lot of people will get angry at that episode because people, this episode, because people that are really into the assassination are really into it. And if you have a differing theory, they'll let you know, Kurt here, don't, don't do that. It's cool. If you have a different theory, just don't get mad. If I don't happen to talk about it on this episode, because I seriously can't talk about everything about the JFK, every theory about the JFK assassination, or this would be an ongoing JFK podcast. And, you know, I still want to talk about like Bigfoot and aliens. So no, that's not going to happen. But I do want to try and deep dive as much of it as I can. The plausible theories, and I'll talk about some of the non-plausible theories as well. But I also want to talk about some of the facts that not a lot of people get right. You'll, you'll see what I'm saying. Anyhow. Where was I? Um, uh, yeah, uh, the it wasn't uh, Warren Commission wasn't handled well. The government knows more than what they're saying, and um, both Biden and Trump have delayed the release of even more declassified JFK documents. Both sides of this, I'm not choosing sides. Both sides have delayed the release of more declassified JFK documents, and I don't think. If it, if it ever does get to the point where they've released every piece of JFK document that's ever been classified and they declassify it all, if they ever release everything, I don't think there's going to be the last document they declassify and release will be, yeah, okay, Oswald didn't do it alone. Here's the other guy. He was standing in the grassy knoll. I don't think there's going to be a smoking gun like that, but I think there are still some smoking guns or things that can lead to that smoking gun in some of these classified documents that are still out there. Um, let's see, a special House committee in 1977, 1978, sorry, they concluded that on the basis of the evidence available to it, I mean, let me start this over because this is a very important part. A special House committee in 1978, again, Kennedy killed in 63. In 78, a special House committee concluded on the basis of evidence available to it that President John F. Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. These guys were hired. A special committee was hired in 1978. Well, they were hired in 77, so I keep going back to that. But in 78, they concluded Kennedy was probably assassinated as the result of of a conspiracy. 
That's not tinfoil tin hat wearing weirdos or people that just write a thousand books about the six seconds in Dallas. No, a special house committee. So what is still hidden? Do we have any idea what's still hidden by the government that still hasn't been released by Trump or Biden or whoever's the next president? Well, there's lots of portions of more than 15,000 records that have been released, but are in blackout. Like some of cases, just like one single word is blacked out, but in others, it's almost the entire document. It's unreadable. 15,000 records that have been released, but you can't read anything on it. Now, now that sounds bad, but some of those 15,000 have little or nothing to do with JFK. Like there's a heavily censored file that involves a CIA plot to kill Castro. Turd here, that's a good thing. Another is a 1963 Pentagon plan for, quote, an engineered provocation that could be blamed on Castro to try and, like, topple him from power. Then there's the history of the CIA's Miami office, which organized a propaganda campaign against, yep, you guessed it, Castro. So look, there's lots of Castro stuff in these 15,000 files that have not been released yet that have nothing to do with JFK's assassination is what I'm saying. Yeah, they all happened in 63. JFK was president, but they aren't JFK assassination related. Now, there are other redacted files that are believed to contain new new CIA information about, nope, not JFK assassination, no, the break-in at the Democratic National Committee in Washington Watergate Hotel. Yeah, that Nixon stuff. But it's wrapped up in this Kennedy assassination or these Kennedy files that have not been released. So again, not going to help you with the JFK assassination at all, people. Sorry. There's the personnel file of late George, oh, I got his name wrong already, Jonidas, uh, who is a CIA intelligence operator, uh, operative, um, who in the uh, House investigation in the late 70s lied to Congress about what he knew about a CIA-backed exile group that had ties to Oswald. Boom. All right, so we got something. Something that ties to Lee Harvey Oswald is still in there, and it's about a guy who was a career CIA guy who lied to Congress about it. So there is some more information about Oswald that has not been released. There was a federal appeals court in 2018. They actually upheld the CIA's rejection of a lawsuit by researcher Jefferson Morley to obtain these files. They said, nope, can't be released yet. Why? because some of these people might still be alive or it might do damage to the American intelligence community back in the 60s. I'm sorry. If there are still people alive, they're old enough where it's not going to hurt them if this information comes out. It's also not going to hurt America if they go, oh yeah, America was doing shady shit back in the 60s. Shocker. Everybody knows it was. It's not going to surprise anybody. Now, There's another, again, it's been partially released, but really blacked out, file that contains information on how the CIA might have monitored Lee Harvey Oswald on a trip that Oswald took to Mexico City ahead of the assassination. Now, that one is important. Because, yeah, he did go to Mexico City. 
The government knows who he met there, what was discussed in Mexico City ahead of the assassination, and it still hasn't been fully released. The files also are, su are supposed rumored to have, based on those partially blacked out ones, more of what the CIA was doing in New Orleans, some more information about that Mexico City trip I just talked about, and some revelations about the CIA's role eh, in Watergate, who I don't care about. But it states that, um, look, even though there's 15,000 files that have not been released, 99% of the documents that are relevant to JFK have already been released. But you deep dive that just a little bit, that's a lie. Straight up, that is a bold-faced, not grain of salt, that is a lie. There are still documents out there that people know about. People know that, oh, there's a document that is related to JFK's uh, autopsy. There are photos. There are documents. There are tons of photos that have never been released. The Dealey Plaza Museum, where, you know, the Texas School Book Depository, where Oswald was, it's now a museum about the JFK assassination. It's a fantastic museum if you're interested in this topic. Um, and it has... So many photos that you will just, it'll, it'll blow your mind. It is incredible to walk through it, even with all of that. It is known that the government confiscated photos from eyewitnesses that have never been returned to them, never been released. There are photos from different angles that could show the grassy knoll, that could show people that are relevant to this assassination in clearer detail that have just never been released. There are photos of the limo from the front. Like it was going towards these people. They took photos. If these photos are clear, they'll show stuff that I'll talk about later, like the bullet hole in, in the uh, windshield or the trajectory of the bullet that actually hit Kennedy, the final shot basically for Kennedy. These have never been released. Eyewitnesses said, I have photos. I took photos. My camera was taken away from me. My photos, my uh, my film reels were taken away, film rolls were taken from me and never released, never returned. They've never seen it. They've been to that Dealey Plaza Museum and their stuff isn't there. So where is all of that? So it's straight up a lie that they said that 99% of these has already been released. It's just not true. Sadly, there's a good chance that a lot of this stuff has been destroyed. And I'll talk about that in a little bit too. But one of the newly released documents revealed the name of a CIA official who intercepted Oswald's mail in the months before JFK's killing, Reuben Efron. It turns out that Efron had a UFO encounter in 1955 when he was on a train journey through the Soviet Union with Senator Richard Russell, who was a Democrat from Georgia and an army colonel. They all saw what a CIA report called two flying saucers. He was among the Warren Commission members who interviewed Marina Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald's wife, in 1964. So... There is a weird UFO connection that happens, and there's a couple of them actually, that happens with JFK. I'll tell you another one in a minute. But it's really interesting to know that it's newly released, 
this guy who was part of the Warren Commission saw UFO in 1955. Two of them, two flying saucers, 1955. So there are still stuff that's coming out that is tangentially related to JFK that will surprise everybody. And this one surprised the shit out of everybody. All righty, let's keep going on, though. I'm already at an hour, almost. Um, There was a lot of information that the Warren Commission concluded. Here's one of the things that the Warren Commission concluded that doesn't get a lot of of press. It's kind of buried. Several factors supported the second gunman theory. Firstly, acoustic analysis of the Zapruder film, one of the most comprehensive visual records of the assassination. What they mean by that is the Zapruder film was a silent film, but using some audio that they had, they could sync up with Zapruder film. Suggests that three shots were fired, not two, as the Warren Commission concluded. So even the Warren Commission were like, I don't know, could be more than... Two. Warren Commission said at the end, now it's two. If you really deep dive into it, there are factors. There are scientific, there's scientific evidence that says two, no. Kurt here, also two, fuck no. You can go to the lightest deep dive of the JFK assassination ever. You're gonna you're gonna find there is definitely at least three, if not four, shots fired that day. It continues. The three shots fired aligns with testimony of multiple witnesses who reported hearing three distinct gunshots and reported it to the Warren Commission. It also added the bullet trajectory raised suspicion, as did the presence of unidentified figures on the grassy knoll in Dealey Plaza where the president was shot. Yeah, that's a lot to pack right there in the middle of something where you're going to then say, nope, it was only two shots and it was a single assassin. Even though we've got a lot of multiple eyewitnesses from that day that heard three shots, if not more, and unidentified figures on the grassy knoll where people said they thought they heard shots go by. Zapruder himself said he heard the of bullets go by his head where he was standing Oswald's bullets would not have gone by his head. I mean, they would have gone by, but he wouldn't have heard that whoosh like he was saying. He, you know, they were coming from behind him. Behind him was the grassy knoll. Zapruder himself really kind of packs the, it kind of like confirms the whole, there was a second shooter on the grassy knoll. He said he heard the whoosh of bullets go by his head from behind them. But let me pause right there because I'm going to come back to the assassination in a bit. Well, in a lot more detail. But I want to go down some of the rabbit holes as to why he was possibly killed. Now, these are grain of salt time stuff, but some are more plausible than others. Uh, and I'm kind of trying to stick to the plausible ones because I'll, I'll, I'll debunk a few at the end of this, don't worry. But there is, um, there's, a, there's a memo. It's called the infamous burned memo. And what it is is... Well, it's a memo that was about to be burned. See, that's where it gets its name from. Um, the thing is, a lot of experts say it's a fake, but I want to talk about it anyway, because there's this thing called the burn memo. This memo was passed to the fringe media, i.e. people that are into UFOs, in 1999. 
It was passed to them by an anonymous source, and he said he was a former CIA operative. He said he worked for the CIA between 1960 and 1974, and he actually pulled this memo from a fire when the CIA was burning some of its most sensitive files. Kurt here, that part is very plausible. I'm not saying that this guy, because no one knows who he was, was an actual CIA, CIA operative, but that is very plausible that they were just destroying documents. Now, he says he pulled this file, file from the fire. It start, he threw it in the fire, saw what it was, pulled that out of the fire. In the burn memo, it says the CIA director at the time, his name's blacked out, wrote, Lancer, which was the CIA's code name for JFK, by the way, Lancer has made some inquiries regarding our activities, which we cannot allow. Please submit your views no later than October. Your action to this matter is critical to the continuance of this group. I'm going to read a little bit more from this one site that's all about the burn memo. Um, but that right there is enough. I mean, that's like a very big smoking gun of basically saying we got we to gotta stop Kennedy. Um, but there, uh, let me jump to 2011 for a second. There's this guy who was a UFO investigator named William Lester. He said he unearthed this memo courtesy of a Freedom of Information Act, a different memo. And he suggested it provides evidence for the motive of the assassination of JFK connected to UFOs. Now, the letter was written by JFK to the head of the CIA 10 days prior to his assassination. Now, in this letter, Kennedy demanded to be shown highly confidential documents about UFOs. The secret memo is one of two letters written by JFK asking for information about UFOs on November 12, 1963. He said that the CIA released the documents to him under the Freedom of Information Act. That's how William Lester got it after he made a request for this, his new book. Um, the letter says, Memorandum for Blacked Out, the Director Blacked Out, Central Intelligence Agency, Classification Review of All UFO Intelligence Files Affecting National Security. Now, it's signed by JFK. As I discussed with you previously, I've initiated blank and the instructed James Webb to develop a program with the Soviet Union Joint Space and Lunar Exploration. It would be very helpful if you would have the high threat cases reviewed with the purpose of identification of bona fide as opposed to classified CIA and USAF sources. Now, Kurt here, let me pause right here to say that, yes, yeah, he's asking about UFOs. But what he's really asking about is, is there any way that we can tell the, the, the Soviets that what they're seeing and reporting as UFOs aren't U.S. spy planes? Because you got to remember... We were real close to a war with the Soviets at this point. We're very close. The Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, we were very, very close. So Kennedy was trying to calm everybody down, saying that those UFOs that you're seeing over there in Russia, they're not us. So that I could kind of see him asking about, but people are latching on to the UFOs or identified threats. Now... The problem is, oh, actually, before I get to the problem, let me, let me actually read you the burn memo that I was talking about. So the burn memo is a very, it's got, a, you know, the charred, crispy edges. It says top secret MJ-12 on it, Central Intelligence Agency, Director of Central Intelligence, MJ something, one maybe, um, Project Majestic something, 
It's all burnt out right in the centers, right when the good stuff is. In the context of this status, it's become necessary to review and evaluate duplicate duplications of field activations in light of current situation. To eliminate this problem, I have drafted new directives for your review and consideration. Please evaluate each draft on its own merit with the goal of finding unacceptable or finding acceptable solutions in which all can agree upon. As you must know, Lancer, again, that's JFK, has made some inquiries regarding our activities, which we cannot allow. Please submit your views no later than October. Your action to this matter is critical to the continuation of our group. And it says, President's eyes only need to know, DOD 5200.1, Project Blue Moon, maybe Blue something, Blue Book. It's It could be Project Blue Book, but it doesn't really look like it's Project Blue Book. Freedom of Information, Project Environment, something like that. It says, do not remove top secret MJ-12 original carbon. So, yeah, it's cool. It's a cool, the, the burn document is really cool. The burn memo is really cool. Uh, here's another source for the Lester document, though. That top secret memo that I just read to you from Lester, that, that, that this guy Lester found, it was written on November 12, 1963. The president ordered the CIA director to organize the intelligence agency files related to UFOs, that one. Well, it hasn't turned up anywhere else besides this guy Lester's book. And I mean anywhere. Everything about this goes back to Lester. And that's not how freedom of information files get released. They don't go... All right, we'll release it this one time. Hey, that guy beat you to it. If you want to know about it, you got to go ask him. No, there's not just one copy. A research technician at the JFK Library in uh, Boston, he was unable to find any carbon copies of it in the presidential archives, and that is important. He said, we did research into the presidential papers to try and find any evidence of the November 12, 1963 letter to the director of the CIA, John McCone. Despite the fact that JFK kept carbon copies of all his letters, even his classified ones, searching through the president's office files, CIA, NASA, and national security files, we could find no evidence of this memo or anything like it. He also noted that this Lester memo doesn't look like any other top secret memos that Kennedy wrote during his presidency, and they have a ton to compare them to. He said that something's a little odd about it. It is sanitized in very odd places. The director's name, the top heading of the document, which usually distinguishes which agency is uh, generating it, and the tiny top secret print at the top of the letter. Top secret items are usually stamped in large dark ink on the letter. So, do I think the Lester document is 100% real? No, I don't. Can I debunk it? No, I can't. Yes, it's odd that there is no other, anyone else has ever been able to find the Lester document. So that's a huge red flag. The burn memo, chances are we would never have found it if it wasn't, if, if, if it is real. We would never have found it unless this guy is a real former CIA operative who happened to pull it from the fire. There's nothing to compare it to. So you have to grain assault both of those. It is known that Kennedy had an inquiry about UFOs or was an interest in UFOs. I'll put it that way. But again, it probably doesn't go down too far down that rabbit hole that people wanted to go down. He was not looking at bodies from Roswell 
like other presidents had. At that point, that's kind of been taken care of, and the president didn't need to know about this stuff, so they probably didn't know about this stuff. So that one, that one is weird. In my opinion, it could be fake. I would like to find out more about it. I would hope that somewhere along, somewhere in my lifetime or your lifetime or anybody's lifetime, more information comes out that could corroborate the burn memo. And just one more piece of information. But again, there is a good chance that the government has burnt a lot of the evidence needed about JFK and not even about JFK, about UFOs as well. So how about this one? This one is weird. And uh, this one's less grain of salt. There's proof that it happened. Did you know that a British paper was actually tipped off about the the assassination before it happened? Well, it's true. A British newspaper received an anonymous phone call about, quote, big news in the United States 25 minutes before Kennedy was shot. There's a batch of about 2,800 declassified documents and includes a November 26, 1963 memo from the CIA to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover about a call received by the Cambridge News on November 22nd, 25 minutes before Kennedy was shot. The memo from the Deputy CIA Director James Angleton says the caller said, the Cambridge News reporter should call the American Embassy in London for some big news and then hung up. Anna Sava, a current Cambridge news reporter, said Friday there's no record of the call. We have nobody here who knows the name of the person who took the call. Now, the memo was released by the U.S. National Archives in July. The phone call to Cambridge News was first reported a long-ass time ago by this uh, Kennedy conspiracy theorist named Michael Eddowes. In the 80s, this guy Eddowes, who was a British lawyer, claimed to have a CIA document mentioning the call. Now, unfortunately, this guy died in 1992, but he wrote a book alleging that the CIA, that the Kennedy assassination was not Lee Harvey Oswald, but a Soviet imposter who took his identity. Unfortunately, because of his book, or well, maybe fortunately, the um, Kennedy, uh, Oswald's body was exhumed in 81. The autopsy confirmed that it was Oswald, so that part wasn't true. But this guy in the 1980s, had a CIA document that wasn't confirmed until way, way later, like 40 years later, but it's confirmed. Now, yes, the the guy, the anonymous caller, just said there's big news and you've got to call the United States, but um, uh, the uh, embassy, the American embassy. But here's the deal. There was no big news that day. When it was called, when he, when he called, when this person called, there was no big news. There was no, quote, big news about America, especially the timing 25 minutes before the biggest news around the world in 1963 happened when Kennedy was assassinated. So that one is real. There's proof it happened. And this guy had that proof in the 80s. And everybody said, no, nah, man, that CIA document, that's bullshit. It's obviously fake, except it wasn't. So there's stuff still out there is my point. There is stuff that's still out there that could get into the public's hands. If like, look, hey, if you're listening to this and you've got CIA documents about UFOs, about Kennedy, about anything that you think would be an interest to the public, 
Send them to me. I'll gladly read them. I don't give a shit. What, are they going to sue me? I don't have anything. Go ahead and sue me. Like, seriously, paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Send me your documents. If they look even remotely legit, I'll read about them on an episode. All right, so what are some of the other JFK theories that have a kernel of truth to them? Well, this is one that I posted on the Facebook fan page the other day. This one's nuts. This one's weird. There was a, uh, a President Kennedy film log book that is real. It's from the White House. It's legit. And in this film log book, um, it has something that makes people think that maybe JFK survived the assassination attempt. Kurt here, I don't think Kennedy lived. If you've seen that footage, there is no way he survived. But this one is strange. There's this White House logbook for presidents, and it shows what movies they showed at the White House screening room and, more importantly, who was in attendance. According to the logbook, a film was screened at the White House on November 29th, 1963, for 20 people. White House projectionist Paul Fisher is the guy who actually filled out the White House logbook. He wrote it down as Little John's Birthday Party. John F. Kennedy Jr., born on November 25th, 1960. So they're watching home movies, basically. But, conspiracy time. Both John F. Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy are listed as being in attendance at the screening, which, again, November 29th, 1963, took place a week after the president's death. Now, do I think Kennedy was there? No, but it's really strange. This is a detailed logbook. You can see a picture of it on the fan, Facebook fan page. This guy wrote it down. Paul Fisher wrote it down, and there's little check marks of who was in attendance, and it says president, and he, yep, checked. Yep, he wasn't in attendance that one. It was only Jackie on this one, you know, like that kind of stuff. Little, little X's, you know, president, yes, Jackie, yes, and then anybody else that was in attendance on these screenings. doesn't seem like he checked those boxes in advance if you look at the rest of them. So it wasn't like he just did them all, marked them all down like, oh, of course the president's going to be after all these screen or it's going to be at attendance on all these screenings. No, that was not it. Was it a slip up? Who knows? I mean, this guy had a really tough job. It was a week after the, the president was murdered and they were showing, Jackie was showing little John's birthday party. For, for people. It's, it's just weird. It just adds to the ton of theories about JFK, some of which I'll talk about later. Um, it's just a weird one. Why would he write down that JFK was in attendance a week after he died in the official White House logbook for presidents? And you can see it, and that one's true too. Oh, and the projectionist, Paul Fisher... He died in 2007. His wife died in 2013. His son died in 2011. So we'll never know is what I'm saying. <sighs> it's, it's a lot. The weird shit that surrounds JFK is a lot. There's just a lot. Um, but let's focus on the Warren Commission for these next few. Um, one thing that I found really interesting about the Warren Commission is how much witness intimidation they did. It's ridiculous. 
Um, there's a guy named Richard Beyer. He wrote that many eyewitnesses whose statements pointed to a conspiracy were either ignored or worse, the Warren Commission intimidated them until they changed their eyewitness testimony. There's a book called uh, JFK, The Last Dissenting Witness. Um, uh, last dissent, It's a biography of Gene Hill from 1992. Bill Sloan wrote that the Warren Commission assistant counsel, Arian Specter, attempted to humiliate, discredit, and intimidate Gene Hill into changing her story. He also said that she was abused by Secret Service agents, harassed by the FBI, received death threats. Another book called JFK Breaking the Silence quotes several assassination eyewitnesses as saying that the Warren Commission interviewers repeatedly would cut them off or stifle any comments casting doubt on the conclusion that Oswald had acted alone. The Warren Commission was so convinced or, or had, a, had an agenda that, it, that, that the results would have to be Oswald acted alone, that if any of these eyewitnesses that were there that day tried to even go away from that, they'd be like, ah, stop, or they would just ignore those comments. There's another book called Crossfire. Um, Jim Mars gives accounts of several people who said that they were intimidated by either FBI agents or more and more people the longer, the more I look into this, and even that, that police officer I was talking about earlier that I had met, he said it wasn't FBI agents. It was anonymous individuals that would intimidate or harass eyewitnesses, suppressing what they knew regarding the assassination. Like, for example, uh, Richard Carr, Akia Clemens, Sandy Speaker, and A.J. AJ Milliken, all of them reported that anonymous individuals or people that said they were with the FBI intimidated them to change their eyewitness testimony. Uh, he also writes that the Texas School Book Depository employee Joe Molina was intimidated by authorities and lost his job soon after the assassination. And that witness, Ed Hoffman, was actually warned by an FBI agent that he might get killed if he continued to talk about what he said he observed on that day. This isn't the this isn't like this isn't the X-Files people. This is real. This is what the Warren Commission was doing. Also, during the Warren Commission, eyewitness deaths. There are so many people that were witness to the Kennedy assassination that had like mysterious or suspicious deaths. And these are the same people that said that they knew more, that they thought it was a conspiracy, that they thought there was a second gunman. Um, there's this guy named Vincent uh, Bugalossi. Um, he said that um, mysterious or suspicious deaths of witnesses connected with the Kennedy assassination originated with journalist Penn Jones Jr. On the third anniversary of the assassination, Ramparts published an editorial by this guy, Penn Jones Jr., along with a handful of articles that he had written earlier for his newspaper, the Midlothian Mirror. He reported that there were six men who had met in Jack Ruby's apartment the night after Ruby shot Oswald. One of the six men, Jones noted, um, one of the six, of the six men, sorry, of the six men, he noted that three of them have died since that day, since the day after Ruby kills Oswald. Reporter Jim Koth, reporter Bill Hunter, 
and Jack Ruby's first attorney, Tom Howard, he said those three men all died mysterious deaths. He did a second article in the same issue. He said that the deaths of seven other individuals who died within three years of the assassination, Erlene Roberts, Nancy Jane Mooney, Hank Killam, William Whaley, Edward Benavides, Dorothy Kilgallen, and Lee Bowers. All of these deaths, again, within three years, mysterious deaths or mysterious circumstances. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't just end with witness harassment or intimidation. Witnesses were dying. People that were connected to this very important day were dying a short time after while the Warren Commission was doing its investigations or before the Warren Commission started its investigations. Here's the next one. Confiscated film and photographs. Again, this matches up exactly what that police officer told me who was there. Seriously, go back and find that episode because I get chills thinking about the tour he gave me on uh, of Dallas on like a daily basis and what he witnessed. It's weird. Uh, in 1978, Gordon Arnold told the Dallas Morning News that he had filmed the assassination from the grassy knoll. Gordon Arnold told the Dallas Morning News he filmed the assassination from the grassy knoll, and then he gave the film to a policeman who was waving a shotgun. He said that he had been afraid to report the incident due to claims of peculiar deaths of witnesses to the assassination. Ten years later, he told producers for The Men Who Killed Kennedy that the film was taken from him. So there's one guy who's got film from the grassy knoll. It's never been seen. Another eyewitness, identified as Beverly Oliver, came forward in 1970. Kurt here, I don't believe this one. She said she was the babushka lady who's seen in the Zabruder film, who there's tons of theories about, and I'll get to them in a little uh, a little while later. Um she said that after the assassination, she, she was contacted at work by two men who thought she was either, she thought were either FBI or Secret Service agents. And they told her they wanted to take her film, have it developed, and return it to her within 10 days. They took her film, but never returned it. Beverly Oliver's story, if you really deep dive into it, doesn't really match up. She really wasn't the babushka lady. What she said, the camera she said she had, didn't exist at the time. But there was a babushka lady. That part is true. She's seen in the Zapruder film. You can see her. She's wearing a babushka. That's where she got the name. She is holding a camera, and that footage has never been released. Her identity, never been released. So there are still mysteries to the Kennedy assassination to this day. There's photos of Kennedy's body. There's so many inconsistencies in the doctor's reports and the photos. The evidence is a freaking mess. There's... um. Photos of his brain that people later said that wasn't his brain. I was the I was one of the doctors there that day when he's brought in. That wasn't his brain. Those are not the photos we took. We took sections of his brain this way, not this way. There's photos of his head that people are like, that is not the way his head looked when they brought it in. Again, if you've seen the Subruder film, you realize the damage that happened to JFK's head. And the official Warren Commission photos do not match up. And the doctors who were there that day looked at those photos and said, I didn't take that photo. That doesn't match up at all. But I'll talk more about the body later. All right. I guess 
we should talk a minute about November 22nd, 1963. Lee Harvey Oswald on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository took, quote unquote, two or three shots from his rifle. Took three at least. The first one missed. The second one struck Kennedy's neck or back. And the third one blew off his head, basically, and also struck Connolly, who was in the jump seat in front of him. Let me pause right here to say if you actually put Connolly, because this is big, uh, another big one, the magic bullet theory, there's no way the bullet could have passed through Kennedy at the, at the angle he was at and hit Connolly the way he was sitting. If you put Connolly in the jump seat in the correct position, it's feasible he would have been hit by a bullet that struck Kennedy. I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes about the magic bullet, but it could happen because the jump seat wasn't directly in front of Kennedy. It was off a little bit. The way that Connolly was sitting was over a little bit. He could have been hit by a bullet. I don't believe the magic bullet theory. I don't think that the bullet cleanly went through Kennedy, hit Connolly the way it did. You can watch that Oliver Stone movie for all that info. Um, I think Connolly got hit by a bullet or shrapnel of a bullet and it stayed with him until the day he died. I'll talk about that later. But that's the official story of basically of what happened to Kennedy on that day. Two to three bullets by Oswald on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Um, I don't know. Let's go over everyone who was shot. How about that? Since we're talking about that day. JFK? Check. Yes. He was obviously shot. Connolly? He was shot. But did you know that a third person was hit that day too? Hopefully, some of you are like, shit, I didn't know this. Some of you will obviously know this. It's it's fairly out there. That's right. There was an eyewitness to the motorcade. His name was James Tagg. He was also hit. James Tagg was also hit. He said he remembered hearing the first shots. He thought it was a firecracker. He later testified that the first shot he recalled hearing had occurred after the presidential limo had already completed the 120-degree slow turn from Houston Street onto Elm Street and then straightened out. The motorcade then proceeded in his direction down Elm Street, parallel to Commerce Street. He said that um, uh, soon after the shots were fired, he was approached by a Dallas detective. That guy's name is Buddy Walters. Buddy Walters noticed specks of blood on Tag's right cheek. He thought he had, he had had a small left uh, scab from a cut, which occurred about a week before the assassination. So he thought that's what he had been asking about. And then he's like, oh, God, no, I am kind of bleeding a little bit. So the detective asked him where he'd been standing. So James Tagg took Detective Walters over to the area, and they discovered on the upper curve part of Main Street's south curb a, quote, very fresh scar impact that they believed indicated that a bullet had struck there and taken a small chip out of the curb's concrete. Now, one of the bullets had ricocheted off the curb, and debris hit Tag, basically. The, uh, the curb with that scar chip was not cut out until August 1964, because James Tag repeatedly reminded authorities of also being wounded on that day, and that curb is also in the National Archives. The scar chip was 23 feet 6 inches north of the south edge of the triple underpass rainbow railroad bridge, about 20 feet from where he had stood during the attack, uh, during the shootings. He said that uh, the detective told him that it appeared that the bullet had been fired from either the Texas School Book Depository or 
the Dal Tex building. That's important because there are some people, a lot, not some, there are a lot of people that say there might have been a second shooter out in the grassy knoll, but there might have been a third shooter on the Dal Tex building or in the Dal Tex building. So right then, the day it happened, this detective told this guy, I think it came from the Daltex building. Now, when James Tag, um, Tag testified before the Warren Commission the next year, he acknowledged that all of the shots could have come from the Texas School Book Depository building, and he reportedly believed that Oswald acted alone. Hold on. Later, James Tag changed his tune. He said no. He actually authored two books on the, SNA, uh, on the assassination. One of the books says that LBJ and his associates planned the killing. So associates planned the killing. But he changed his tune. He said he does not think that Oswald acted alone. He thought that day in all the commotion and hearing the official story, he said, oh, yeah, it could have just been him. All righty, let me keep on with this a little bit more. According to L. Fletcher Prouty, the physical location of James Tagg when he was injured by a bullet fragment is, quote, not consistent with the, direct, the trajectory of a missed shot from the Texas School Book Depository. He thinks that James Tagg was instead wounded by a missed shot from the second floor of the Dal Tex building. The Dal Tex building. It's really important. One, because there's not a lot of people that know there was a third person shot that day. Two, the guy that was shot or hit by debris changed his tune shortly after the Warren Commission saying, now the, the official story is bullshit. Three, the detective that day thought it could have come from the Dal Tex building. And then this independent person said, the trajectory does not match up with the Texas School Book Depository. All righty, so Connolly, we know he got hit. Magic bullet or not, Connolly got hit. He actually lived with shrapnel in his body until the day he died. When he died in 1993, forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wecht and the Assassinations Archive and Research Center petitioned Attorney General Janet Reno to recover the remaining bullet fragments from Connolly's body saying that these fragments would disprove the Warren Commission's single-bullet, single-gunman conclusion. The Justice Department replied, it would have no legal authority to recover the fragments unless Connolly's family gave permission to do so. Sadly, strangely, oddly, however you want to word it, Connolly's family refused permission. What a missed opportunity. Why? Were the Connolly's, why were Connolly's family so determined or, or strong-headed to say, no, you cannot recover fragments from his body, which could either prove or disprove the single gunman theory? It's such a bad thing. It's, so, it's such a bummer that that happened. We had a chance to find out if that bullet would have come from could have come from Oswald's gun, and yet Connolly's family, for whatever reason, said no. All right, now let's talk about the limo. Because Kennedy's limo 
has some serious conspiracies, and I'll be honest, conspiracies that I believe, and I don't think are actually conspiracies. I think it's actually the truth. For example, the chrome by the windshield was hit from an angle that Oswald would not have been able to hit it. That's right. There was damage to not only the windshield, a bullet-sized hole that they could put a pencil through, seen by witnesses at the hospital, the front windshield of the limo had a bullet-sized hole the size of a pencil could fit through, seen by witnesses at the hospital. Not only that, but the interior chrome trim of the windshield was hit by a bullet. Now, there's people that go, oh, that's bullshit. It was obviously that, that that damage was done way prior to the Kennedy assassination. Problem there is there are clear photos of the limo from before the Dallas assassination that shows that chrome trim was perfectly fine. After that day in Dallas, there's a dent in the chrome trim where a bullet hit it. So there's a bullet that hit the interior trim chrome part of the trim. And some people, some people try to say, oh, that was Kennedy's brain or, or, or Kennedy's skull fragments that dented it. Bullshit. Bullshit to an nth degree. They dented it while they're trying to take the top off. Bullshit. It's nowhere near where the straps were for the, or for the, the clamps were for the top. It's a dent from a bullet. You've ever seen a, um, like an old car that, that, that had been like, or old or street sign that had been shot by, by bullets. That's what it looks like. It was hit by a bullet, not from the trajectory that Oswald could have hit it from, from the sixth floor of the Texas school book depository. Now let's talk about that bullet hole in the windshield. People that have viewed it, and I'm going to talk about them in a second, said that it penetrated from the front side of the windshield, not from the inside out. The chipping was from the front, from a bullet penetrating from the front side of the windshield. That rules out the Deltex building. That rules out Texas School Book Depository. That even rules out the grassy knoll. Where did that bullet hole come from? Again, not conspiracies, eyewitnesses saw it at the hospital. The hospital they took Kennedy to immediately after the assassination. There's a Ford Glass plant manager. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get his name in a little bit. He said that um, the hole in the windshield was uh, visible when they asked him to replace the windshield. After the assassination, they took the... Um, they took the, the limo to, um, to a Ford plant to get fixed or to get upgraded, basically, to make it bulletproof, to, put the, to make the hardtop on there permanent, to uh, replace the windshield, to clean out the interior. And this guy, this Ford glass plant manager, like I said, I got his name in a little bit, um, he said that the examination of the bullet hole Again, the size that it, you put a pencil straight through it, the inside chipping was a telltale mark of an object penetrating from the front side of the windshield, not from the inside. The House Select Committee on the assassination became confused about what happened to the limo, apparently. They discovered clear discrepancies in testimony when examining 11 dates regarding the limousine after November 22, 1963. One version... Um, the Parkland surgeon, surgeon who wrote Conspiracy of Silence said, three days after the assassination, Carl Renus, head of security for the Dearborn Division of the Ford Motor Company, drives the limo, helicopters hovering overhead from Washington to Cincinnati. In doing so, he noted several 
bullet holes. That's in all caps. This guy wrote several bullet holes. The most notable being the one in the windshield, chrome molding strip, one in the windshield, and the chrome molding strip, which he said was clearly a primary strike and not a fragment. That limousine was taken by Renus, where the chrome molding was replaced immediately. The Secret Service told him to keep your mouth shut. He recalled thinking at the, at the time, there's something wrong here. There were several people who testified to holes in the windshield on November 22nd, 1963. Like Richard Dudnum, Dudman, a St. Louis dispatch, in his article in the New Republic, he wrote, a few of us noticed the holes in the windshield. The Dallas police officer Freeman said it was a bullet hole in the windshield. Dallas police officer Stavis Ellis, you could put a pencil through it. Frank Cormier of the St. Louis Dispatch, bullet hole. Evely Gangus, a medical student, Ganges, I don't know, a medical student at the Parkland Hospital, bullet hole in the windshield. Uh, then in 1993, or no, I'm sorry, 1992, there was a guy that called into the Larry King show who was doing a thing about the JFK assassination who said that he was there, he saw the, uh, the bullet hole. Then uh, Chicago Special Agent Abraham Bolden said in an interview that he was aware of the bullet hole. George, oh, here we go. George Whitaker Sr., that's that guy. George Whitaker Sr. from Ford Motor Company. Bill Ashby, crew leader at the Arlington Glass Company. Willard Hess, co-owner of the automotive firm Hess and Eisenhardt in Cincinnati, Ohio, said the original windshield was destroyed at the Ford Motor Company's Rouge plant, Baton Rouge plant in Detroit, Michigan on November 25th, 1963. They had them first, they had them first pull out the windshield so they can get a, a template for the size of the windshield that they would need to replace it with, put in a new windshield and put a crack through the windshield. Not a hole, a crack. They then took photos of that crack and said, oh, look, there's never a bullet hole. It was just a crack, stress crack. No, bullshit. These guys said that that first windshield, they were then told to destroy that windshield. Um, uh, Evely Ganges, she saw, said, I already said that. She saw a hole in the windshield, said it was very clear. It was a through and through bullet hole through the windshield of the car from the from the front to the back. But yeah, that uh, that George that George Whitaker guy, in 1993, he gave a tape-recorded conversation to attorney Doug Weldon and a uh, professor of criminal justice as well. He stated that when he was showed up for work that that Monday after the assassination, November 25th, the presidential limo had already had the interior taken out and the windshield removed. A Ford, v a Ford VP assigned him to manage the work for a new replacement windshield, which meant using the damaged one as a template. He said... That windshield had a bullet hole in it, coming from the outside through. It was a good, clean bullet hole, right straight through from the front. And you can tell when the bullet hits the windshield, like when you hit a rock or something, what happens? The back chips out, and the front may just have a pinhole in it. This had a clean, round hole in the front and fragmentation coming out the back. Dallas Motorcycle Patrolman Stavis Ellis, that guy I was talking about earlier, he said in 1971, he told an interviewer, it was a hole in the left front of the windshield. It was a hole. You could put a pencil through it. You could take a regular standard writing pencil and stick it through the hole. That uh, Dallas uh, motorcycle patrolman, H.R. Freeman, he did an interview later on. He said, I was right beside it. I could have touched it. It was a bullet hole. You could tell what it was. 
Secret Service agent Charles Taylor Jr. He wrote a report in November 22, 1963. He logged. In addition, a particular note was the small hole just left to center in the windshield from what appeared to be bullet fragments were removed from the hole by the Secret Service. Uh, let's see, Richard Dudman in 1963, December 21st, 1963, he wrote, a few of us noted the hole in the windshield when the limousine was standing at the emergency entrance after the president had been carried inside. I could not approach close enough to see what side was the cup-shaped spot, which indicates a bullet had pierced the glass from the opposite side, though. <sighs> it just keeps going, guys. Um, let's see... There's some talk about like the uh, when the driver, what the driver did during the um, assassination, but I'm going to skip over that because we're getting real deep into this. Sorry, an hour and forty something minutes. Uh, let's see. Here's some inter- here's an interesting fact about the limo. Did you know? Because I didn't know this. The assassination limo actually continued into service with President Carter being the last one to ride in it. It was retired out of service in 1978. Um. Johnson, who got the limo, obviously, right after Kennedy, said, I want it bulletproof. I want it uh, new motor put in because of the weight of the bulletproofing of the of the car. I want the roof put on it permanently. Also, I don't like that blue color. Paint it black. So he changed the limo, but it was the same limo that JFK was assassinated in. So fucking weird. Um, Let me skip ahead a little bit. Let me talk about JFK's brain. I got to get to this one, though. In 1966, President Kennedy's brain disappeared from the National Archives, or Kurt here, what was left of his brain. There is a lot of, there are a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot, there's a lot, there's a big rumor, basically, that says his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, might have destroyed the brain, which I'll talk about that more in a second. Um, But that autopsy of the brain, there are most historians like not conspiracy tinfoil hat people. Most historians regard the autopsy of John F. Kennedy as, quote, the most botched segment of the government's investigation. The doctors that were there that day when Kennedy was brought in said the rear section was blasted out. Again, separate shooter then. A nurse there and even Clint Hill, the Secret Service agent, said that Jackie had was cupping something in her hands. And when they got to the hospital, she said, I've got his brains here. And she handed the, the sadly handed the, the, the things that she was cupping, his brains in his skull, to a nurse. So these are people that, that saw it as it happened. Doctors who conducted the autopsy um, performed two brain examinations in the days following his examination. And they said the second one seemed to be from a different brain. And that's from a staff report on the Assassinations Record Review Board. The second one might have been from a different brain. Uh, Why would they do a different report for a different brain? Because it didn't line up to Oswald being the single shooter. The direction that they came through, the the destruction of the brain, the destruction of the skull, the destruction of the head of Kennedy, 
did not match what would happen if it came from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. So they also wrote about this Assassinations Records Review Board also wrote about perplexing discrepancies in the medical evidence. There was among more than 400,000 pages of internal records that showed that it tried to make as much information public about the assassination as it could, but the National Archives kept a lot of it hidden or classified. The five-person member uh, panel, they said that... um, they did not have a sufficient, they did not have sufficient conclusion to what direction the bullet came from. Uh, the brain photographs in the Kennedy records, they say, um, don't show Kennedy's brain, much less the damage that happened to Kennedy's brain when he was shot there. They said that the brain photographs in the Kennedy records do not match what the doctors that were there that day had what the people that saw them saw him in there, like the nurses and the other medical staff saw him in there, does not match. The photos in the Kennedy records do not match. Um, I am 99, 90 to 95% certain that the photographs in the archives are not of President Kennedy's brain. That's by Horn, a formal naval officer who said in an interview, if they aren't, that can mean only one thing. There's been a cover-up of medical evidence. He says that the damage to the second brain reflected a shot from behind. He said that the damage from the first brain was Kennedy's, and in his expert opinion reflects a shot from the front. The, uh, there's, there's testimony of former FBI agent Francis O'Neill Jr., who is present at the autopsy, and... Former Navy photographer John T. Stringer, who said he took the photos, and he said the photos do not match what he took. He said in a 1997 deposition, there was not too much of the brain left when it was taken out of Kennedy's skull and put in a white jar. He said more than half the brain was missing, but the photos in the Kennedy's archives show a mostly intact brain. He said it does not square with what he saw. The only section of the brain which is missing is a small section over here, he said in one of the photographs. This looks almost like a complete brain. He noted that the photos of the supplementary examination, the second examination, those match the photos, but not the brain he saw on November 22nd. That's really important to note. He also said... They seem to be of a different type of film from the ones that he used, the one that Stringer, the guy who took the photos. He looked the photos and he said, those photos are on a different type of film. He also said that he took photos of the cross-section of the brain that had been cut out to show the damage, and he said no such photos are in the archives collection. He said the cross-sections that he did see in the Kennedy's uh, collection do not match the photos that he took that day. He also said some of the photos he took at the autopsy itself are still missing to this day. He said he gave everything from the brain examination to Humes, who gave the film to Kennedy's personal physician, the late Admiral George Berkeley. To this day, it is unknown where those photos are, where the full autopsy photos are, and what actually happened to JFK's brain. So fucking weird, man. Like, the more you read into it, the more gaps there are in the evidence and in the conclusions from the Warren Commission and everything since that day. Now, the people think that Robert F. Kennedy took the brain, not 
to be gruesome or whatever. He said he took the brain to either hide all the medications that Kennedy was on, that JFK was on, which were a ton of medications. He had a lot of ailments. Or if anybody was to try and ever do a um, a medical examination of the brain, they would find out that he was way sicker than he wanted to believe. So he was trying to protect the Kennedy name. So he took the brain and burnt it or destroyed it somehow. All righty. That's enough of Kennedy brain talk. Here's a gruesome bit of trivia for you. Nellie Connolly, who was sitting with Connolly in the, in the limo, turned and commented to JFK, who was sitting behind her, Mr. President, they can't make you believe now that there are not some in Dallas who love and appreciate you, can they? The reason she asked that was because there was a big thing about that, that Dallas didn't love Kennedy. So she turned to him and said, well, they can't make you believe now that they're not some in Dallas who love and appreciate you because there's a lot of people out there that day waving and loving Kennedy. Kennedy's reply was, no, they sure can't. The reason I'm telling you this is those were Kennedy's last words. No, they sure can't. So if you're ever in trivia and someone says, what was JFK's last words? His last words are, no, they sure can't. Fuck it. I'm going to keep going. I don't care how long this episode is. Hope you guys, I hope you guys are enjoying this one. This is a lot of work. I've been doing a lot of work on this episode in forever, uh, for, for a long time now. And I'm just going to throw it all in here. If you like this one, great. If not, next week's will be about, I don't know, UFO or Bigfoot or something, but this one's for me. Let's talk about the Zapruder film for a minute. Did you know that there are frames missing from the Zapruder film due to human error in printing? Volume 18 of the Warren Commission's hearings reproduced 158 frames from the Zapruder film in black and white. However, frames 208 to 211 are missing. A splice was visible from frames 207 and 212. Frames 314 and 315 were switched around. Frames 248 was a repeat of 283. 284 was a repeat of 283. Now, this isn't a conspiracy. This is a known fact. But the Dealey Plaza website does say that all frames are accounted for in various versions of the Zapruder film, but many people, myself included, think there are still frames missing from the Zapruder film. And you could go down that rabbit hole all you want as to why I don't have time for it. We're really going long on this episode. But it's very interesting to note that the main film that shows the assassination of JFK has frames missing. Sorry, I was looking for rum. Has frames that are missing. Now, it's not just the Zapruder film, though. Standing across from Zapruder in the Dealey Plaza, from, from Zapruder in the Dealey Plaza, was a Dallas maintenance worker named Orville Nix Sr. He also took film. And his film was the only angle facing Kennedy's motorcade and the area known as the Grassy Knoll. That's right. Orville Nix Sr.'s footage shows the Grassy Knoll. Now, there are some grainy still frames from it. It's it's really interesting to see to think that if we could find the original version of Norville's film, there might be enough. Uh, I'm trying to think of the words. There might be enough uh, data on that film still, the original copy, the cleanest copy 
that could show somebody on the grassy knoll. But days after the assassination, Nick sold his film to the United Press International. They did give it back to him, but they gave him back a copy. And to this day, no one seems to know what happened to the original. Uh, Gail Nix, she's actually suing the National Archives, accusing the government of mishandling the film. Um, She said, I've been on this quest since 1988. I so hope we find the truth in the answers and also my grandfather's film. Now, you can see a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of the Nix film on YouTube. But it's such a bad version. Like I said, we need to find the original because hopefully the original still has that clean enough copy. But it does look like someone is at the grassy knoll. You know where to look. And there's a lot of YouTube videos that like arrow point, arrow pointed out to where you should be looking. It does look like someone's at the grassy knoll. Kurt here, I 100% believe that police officer that told me there was somebody there. So I know there was somebody there. But Nix's film is very important and is still missing to this day. Now, apparently, the original film was last examined in 1978 by photo experts hired by the House Select Committee on Assassination. So in the 70s, the original film still existed somewhere. Somebody has it. They, uh, that panel, though, they concluded that Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy, like I said, and that two gunmen likely fired at him. This is from 1978. How has this not been confirmed by this day? People in the 70s were even con- convinced that there was two gunmen. Now, even though all the films that I'm talking about of the assassination are silent because of the technology used back in the day, even the Babushka Ladies film would be silent. There are audio recordings of the shots fired. There are eight tracks of these recordings, two of them from the Dallas Police Department channels that were open at the time. Um, let's see, there is, uh, do I want to go through all of them? I don't want to go through all of them. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to really cruise through them. There's the first one. It was recorded by James C. Bowles. Um, it's uh, from the police uh, channel from 1226 to 1235. The channel was used for ordinary police duties, it was a, there was a microphone that was stuck open during the time of the assassination, thankfully, so you can get that. The second one um, is used by the, was used by the presidential motorcade by the Dallas police chief and the sheriff of Dallas County. There are tons of copies of that one. The third one, um, this one is uh, from that same motorcade as well. The fourth one is from channels one and channel two. So there's two different versions of that one. The fifth one is an FBI recording of channel one. The sixth one is an FBI playback of the original channel two. The sixth one is uh, made by NF Ramsey in 1983. It's a copy that he, that he made of the Bulls recording from channel one. It's been cleaned up quite a bit. Uh, it just keeps going on and on and on. I could play them for you, but you're not going to, you're not going to really hear much. It's just uh, police chatter. And then, uh, Shots in the background. But it's important because the recordings became a focus of a 79 report by the the House Select Committee on Assassinations. On that one, 1979 committee, they indicated four shots were fired at the Dallas motorcade. Four shots, including one from a separate location from where Lee Harvey Oswald fired shots. Two shooters. The committee concluded that Oswald probably did not act alone. Now, I listen to a variety of these. 
I'll be honest, I hear at least four shots. You can listen to them all. They're easily findable online. There's at least four shots. So the Warren Commission ignored all of that. They had copies of all of these. They ignored all of that. But the audio, which will eventually be cleared up, you know, cleaned up, hopefully using that same kind of like Peter Jackson technology, can be cleaned up to just the bullet shots. That's my hope, is that with technology today, not only the Zapruder film, the Nick's copy of a copy of a copy film, any of the footage can be cleaned up so much, and then this audio matched up, synced up perfectly, that you will hear four shots. And technology will definitely be be uh, a factor in uh, solving this a lot of these conspiracies. All right, I could go into the the magic bullet theory. You probably know that one. Uh, but did you know that Paul Landis, one of the Secret Service agents of that day, said that he found the bullet that hit Kennedy's neck or back, and it didn't go into Connolly. It didn't do the magic bullet stuff. Paul Landis, one of the Secret Service agents that day said he found it. And that same guy, Paul Landis, Secret Service agent from that day, believes there might have been a second shooter as well. I tell you, man, the more you look into this, the more you just like, yeah, everybody there that day is basically saying, all right, there wasn't, wasn't just Oswald. Now, um, I'm going to debunk a few of these for you real quick. I'm going to cruise through them because we're running, uh, now I'm running really late. Uh, for a long time, people thought that the driver of the limo shot Kennedy. No, bullshit. You can clearly see he did not turn around and fire a gun. There was an early copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of the Zapruder film, which people would watch back in the days before digital copies uh, at, at these conventions about Kennedy and UFOs and whatnot. And there was a uh, lens flare kind of blur or burn in that one frame, which on that copy, yeah, it does kind of look like there's like a... a a flash that happens right before Kennedy gets hit. It's not on any of the real ones. It's not real. The, the driver did not kill Kennedy. The driver also did not kill Kennedy, laced the bullet that was laced with um, some kind of like neurotoxin from like the puffer fish or something, which a lot of people thought back in the day. That's why the brain went missing. No, bullshit. There's another theory that uh, Jackie Kennedy shot him. Yep, that's a theory. No, it's bullshit. If Jackie Kennedy was going to shoot JFK, would she synchronize with two other shooters that day? And was she, or was she just like holding on to the gun in her, in her purse? And she was like, oh shit, they're shooting at him. Well, fuck it. I'm going to shoot at him too. It's a dumb theory. No. Uh, how about Ted Cruz's dad killed Kennedy? Seriously, this is a dumb theory. No, this was made up by a syphilitic lunatic to sell national inquirers. Siri, serious. This is real. If you look into it, this, this syphilitic lunatic who was friends with the guy that ran National Enquirer, made up this theory so that the National Enquirer could sell copies. There was nothing, and I mean nothing true about this theory. The next one, a Secret Service agent accidentally fired from the car behind Kennedy. That's an interesting theory, but you can, you can see them in all the various footage and photos. It's debunked so many times over. There were Secret Service agents in the car that said, what? No, we were all in the car. There was no Secret Service agent that just popped up with a gun and went, oh, gosh, I accidentally shot the president. No. Badge man. Badge man is a theory. There's a man that's seen in the shadows of Mary Mormon's photos. Photo. 
if you look at Mary Mormon's photo of the JFK assassination, it shows someone or something that looks like someone um, in the background of this photo, in the shadows of this photo. And if you really do pareidolia a lot, it kind of looks like a man in a police uniform that's never been identified in an area where the second shooter could have been. But ultimately, no. It's not clear enough to prove that it's even a human to me. And some people think that Badge Man is actually uh, Gordon Arnold, who I was talked about earlier, the man that said he filmed the whole thing, but it was confiscated by the cop. But uh, no, people that have actually looked at the, um, tried to figure out from Mary Mormon's really blurry, crappy photo could it even be a human said that the dimensions just aren't even right for a human. It's obviously pareidolia, but there's a lot of people that think that badge man is actually a hit man. That's right. There's a separate badge man theory from the 1988 British documentary series, the men who killed Kennedy. Uh, they proposed that badge man was Lucien Sarti, a French national and alleged contract killer. All right, here we go. Um, no, Photographic expert Jeffrey Crawley concluded that Badge Man was not a person, but background elements. He noted discrepancies with the Badge Man photograph. He argued that the man must have been unusually tall for his badge to even be seen above the five-foot-tall fence, that his eyes are not near the hypothetical scope of his sniper's rifle that people think they see. It, look, it doesn't matter. The, this guy looked into it. This photo expert looked into it and said, it's not a guy. It's definitely not Lucien Sarti, the French national contract killer. So let's move on from Badge Man. <clears throat> oh, uh, one more thing about Badge Man. Badge Man was not seen by Grassy Knoll witness Lee Bowers or Zapruder, who were standing right where Badge Man should have been. No eyewitnesses reported seeing a Dallas police officer anywhere near where Badge Man allegedly stood. All right, done with him. The Babushka Lady. I talked about her a little bit. There's a theory that the Babushka, the babushka Lady was actually a Soviet or Cuban spy, and the camera was actually a gun that it was actually a guy dressed as a babushka lady holding a camera that was actually a gun. I don't know. It's bullshit. The Umbrella Man. Yeah, there's a dude with an umbrella. He wasn't, the, the umbrella wasn't a gun. It wasn't a signal for, for assassins to start shooting. That's the dumbest one. That, that when Umbrella Man moved his umbrella, that's when the assassins were like, oh, now? And started shooting. Come on. Why are you waiting for an Umbrella Man to tell you when to start shooting, snipers? Come on. Uh, he's also, he was just protesting shit. That's why he was holding the umbrella. You can look it up. He actually came forward years later and was like, I didn't even know this was a thing. Here's why I did it. Um, there's a theory that the mob did it. I don't know. Maybe. There's a theory that Johnson did it. Sure. Why not? Um, there's actually a theory that supposedly Jackie Kennedy and Richard Nixon said that, um, well, it's not a theory. Supposedly, I can't find a clear enough copy to say that uh, I think it's true. So grain of salt, Jackie Kennedy and Richard Nixon have said they thought that Johnson had ties to the Kennedy assassination. I, yeah, there's a lot of sites that say this. I couldn't find it clear enough for me to say that I think that's true, but supposedly, sure, why not? How about this one? In The Killing of a President, Robert Groden argues that a black dog man figure can be seen near a bush in frame 413 of the Zapruder film. Problem with this theory is that the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded that an individual was in front of the bushes, not behind them, and that the man is actually the groundskeeper, Ernit Emmett Hudson. I don't know. Do I believe a dog or dog man killed Kennedy? Kurt here? Nope. Sure don't. Let's move on. The Illuminati did it. 
All right. If the Illuminati did it, they aren't telling me. And I think they would tell me since they let me join the Illuminati in 2020. You know, come on. I would know. How about um, a Secret Service agent and even a cop were killed? This is a deeper rabbit hole. Uh, basically, there was a bunch of blood that was seen at a few locations that day in Dealey Plaza. And people, some people think that a Secret Service agent was killed as well as Kennedy. There's no evidence for that. That a police officer was killed that day right there. There's no evidence that that. Um, look, it'd be the fact that, that two people, two other people were also killed and was covered up this entire time, highly doubtful. How about this one? There was an occult ceremony that was done with blood in Dealey Plaza prior to Kennedy's arrival. Look, I'll be on I'll be honest at this point, I was tired of dumb rabbit holes. There is nothing, absolutely nothing to say that it was the occult that the occult were related to this at all. That the blood that was found in Dealey Plaza was like some kind of blood sigil? No. Nowhere. Stop it, people. Stop making me go down these stupid rabbit holes. How about this one? Aliens did it. Yep, uh, that's it. We, we solved it. There you go. Aliens did it. How about this one? There's a song called Bigfoot Shot JFK. You know what, Kurt here? Bigfoot's been shot at enough over the years, so maybe he finally shot back. And if so, good job, Bigfoot. You did it. Finally because I'm skipping ahead now because my voice is really tired at this point. Um, when you guys hear this, it'll probably be over two hours long. Um, for me, it's been two hours and 40 minutes um, of, well, two hours and 30 minutes. Most of the, the stuff that I cut out is absolutely not related at all. It's ums and ahs and pauses, and I got to pee real quick, that kind of stuff. But it's still a two-hour episode, people. Get a big one here. Final theory of the day. Woody Harrelson's dad was one of the assassins. That's right, Texas-born Charles Harrison, Harrelson, father of Woody Harrelson from such things as Cheers and marijuana, is rumored to be a killer. That's right. A book called The Man on the Grassy Knoll says that Woody Harrelson's, where Woody Harrelson's dad was one of the two gunmen, and he was later arrested dressed as a tramp in Dealey Plaza. Kurt here. That's one of the theories that I didn't go through. I kind of skipped over. There's three tramps that were seen in Dealey Plaza. They've all been named. I'll tell you those names in just a second. Those tramps seem to have businessmen's shoes on, they like clean shoes, so obviously they weren't really tramps. They were obviously other killers. Dallas police eventually named the three tramps. Uh, in 1968, uh, Harrelson Sr. was convicted of murdering a businessman in a contract hit in South Texas. However, here, problem here is, records released by the Daily Police Department, by the Dallas Police Department in 1989. They released these records in 1989, but from that day, identified the three tramps as Gus Abrams, Harold Doyle, and John Gedney. So those tramps were tramps. They were not secret assassins. Then, in September 1980, Charles Harrelson surrendered to police after a six-hour standoff in which, he reported, in which he was reportedly high on cocaine. During the standoff, he threatened suicide and stated that he had killed both Judge Wood and President John F. Kennedy. In a television interview, after his arrest, he said... At the same time I said I'd killed the judge, I said I killed Kennedy, which might give you an idea to the state of mind I was in at the time because of the cocaine. He said the statements made during the standoff were, quote, an effort to elongate my life. Yeah, Woody Harrelson's dad has nothing to do with JFK. He said it when he was high as fuck on coke. Nothing more. Um, 
I could keep going. There's the whole Abraham Lincoln Kennedy thing. If you don't know about it, look it up. The Kennedy family curse. It just keeps going. But you get the idea. And nothing currently is going to bring JFK, Oswald, or Jack Ruby back. So we'll, we may never really know what happened that day. But I can tell you it wasn't 100% what the Warren Commission said. Not even remotely what the Warren Commission said. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvik. This has been a very long, very exhausting look into JFK, the theories, the assassinations, and UFOs. I hope you enjoyed this one. Yeah.